0: I hope the people that 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 the people
1: that the people 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 that (laughs) I hope the people that 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 the people the Lord. Amen. Amen. Uh, Pastor Derek this morning uh, is away preaching out at uh, Brandywine Valley Baptist Church this morning, but he didn't leave us high and dry today. Amen. And he sent us a show enough preacher. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about him right now. Amen. Pastor Curtis Dunlap serves as the family life pastor of Epiphany Fellowship Church in Philadelphia. Through this position, Pastor Kurt provides oversight to the church's marriage, men's and women's discipleship, student ministries, as well as some outreach summer programs that the Epiphany Fellowship Basketball League also uh, also uh, is o- also oversees. He uh, is also the founder of the Resolve Youth Conference, which is an annual conference focused on discipling and equipping youth primarily in urban, inner-city contexts. Pastor Kurt is extremely passionate about engaging men and helping them to reach their God-given potential as they cultivate godly relationships while leaving a positive impact on those within their sphere of influence. His diligent labor is for no other end but that men might become mature in Christ through proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pastor Kurt is happily married to his wife, Courtney, and they have four beautiful children, three daughters, Noelle, Layla, and Nyla, and a son, Curtis, Jr. Pastor Kurt is a graduate of Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, where he earned his undergraduate degree in biblical studies. He is currently pursuing his master's degree at Capitol Seminary and Graduate School in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Epiphany, do me a favor and help me welcome Pastor Curtis Morris Dunlap.
0: Oh, man, I always hate introductions like that. Let me say, sure enough, preacher, man, because then then you got expectations now. And I feel like I got to meet them. Amen. Now, nah, it's good to be with uh, Epiphany Wilmington. I've been longing to to get here on a Sunday and spend some time with you guys, see some familiar faces in in the crowd. So it's, uh, it's a joy to my heart uh, to be able to, to be before you um, this morning. Uh, first want to uh, just thank my wife for, where's she at? I, she she just ran out of here. Did she run out of here? Okay, she's with the baby. Uh, but want to thank my wife for putting up with me uh, cause I've been preaching all over the place recently, and uh she's been traveling and missing her home church on Sundays for a few weeks so thank you baby. I appreciate it uh you the bomb amen amen well i'm uh, i'm gonna go ahead and get on in this word and then, and then get out your way if you could stand with me, open your Bibles to first Timothy chapter four stand with me, open your Bibles to first Timothy chapter four. Beginning at verse 11. When you get there, say amen. Well, that wasn't a lot of amens. Amen. All right. Well, it's on the screen if you're still looking for it. First Timothy chapter four, verse 11 through 16. Uh, I'll read it in your hearing. Uh, this is what the word of the Lord says. It says, command and teach these things. Don't let anyone despise your youth, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, give your attention to public reading, exhortation, and teaching, and do not neglect the gift that is in you. It was given to you through the prophecy with the laying, hand, with the laying on of hands by the council of elders. And practice these things, be committed to them, so that your progress may be evident to all. Pay close attention to your life and your teaching and persevere in these things, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and your hearers. If I could tag a a, a title for our time this morning, it would simply be this, Unlocking the Secret to Effective Ministry. Unlocking the Secret to Effective Ministry. Let's pray. Father, we are uh, glad and joyful this day to be in your presence, to have the privilege Of God-given breath in our lungs, sight in our eyes, health, life, and strength, to be able to gather with your people and worship the one true God who is worthy of our praise. So, Father, as we open your word, we enter into this time uh, with humble hearts seeking to learn those things which you uh, deem as beneficial for us. As Paul writes, he says that, All of Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for us. And so, Father, we look to your word for encouragement, for exhortation, for rebuke, for challenge, for the growth of our souls, that you might send us out into a watching world with the love of God uh, and the peace of God that passes all understanding. So be with your servant this day. Uh, Give me uh, clarity of speech Uh, that I might communicate what it is that you would like us to know this morning so that we might be changed and transformed uh, and made for good use, prepared for good use, for your glory and the furthering of your kingdom. This we pray in Christ Jesus name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, as a um, as an African-American male. There are some things that I'm hesitant to do. I, I know y'all looking at me funny already like, man, Pat where, Pat, where is Pastor Kirk going with this already? It's not what you think. Um, I love sports. Love sports. I'm a, I'm a huge sports guy. My, my wife likes sports, and she likes them less now that she's married to me because I love sports so much. But there's, there are certain sports that I just have a difficulty with, and those are the winter sports. Because winter and cold and snow and African-American men just don't go together, just in case you didn't know that. And my wife grew up, you know, she used to go with her friends. She would go skiing all the time out in the Poconos and have a, you know, she would always tell me about what a great time she had skiing and always invite me to go. Babe, we should go skiing. I'm like, we don't ski. Right? I don't ski. Like, I just don't do stuff like that. But, you know, I'm a, I, I, I like to think I'm a, I'm a loving husband. And so I, I say, all right, you know, let me go try this. Uh, one day. So we left after church, made our way up to the Poconos uh, and and got ready to ski. By the time we got there, it was it was kind of later in the day. And so we had missed all of the, the little practice lessons that you can learn. So when you go up there, you know, they expect you to stop by, you know, you get your ski rentals, all that stuff. And they expect you to stop by the little ski instructors booth and get some practice lessons, especially if you've never been skiing before. I hadn't been skiing. We had missed that time. And my wife is telling me she's 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 You know, building my confidence of telling me how easy this is. Right. So, you know, it's not that hard. You're going to love it. We're going to have a great time. And me, I'm very prideful in the sense that I feel like if I do something, I should be excellent at it immediately. I don't care what it is. Like when I start doing something, I want to be excellent at it immediately. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, no big, no big problem. Put these skis on. I'm going to come out here. I'm going to kill it. I'm going to show them how to really ski. And um, I put the skis on. We jump out there. And, you know, wife is like, all right, why don't we just practice a little bit? Let me teach you a couple of things, how to stop, you know, how to turn, all that stuff. So we go to this little bunny hill. You know, you know are you familiar with a bunny hill? It's like a little small kind of a uh, little hump in the ground, I guess. Uh, it wasn't even really much of a hill. It was kind of just flat. But for me, it was a bunny hill. And so she's trying to teach me. And I'm having difficulty. I'm pretty much just sliding along. I can't stop. I'm hitting the fence. And, and, and this happens time after time. I'm getting angry. I'm getting frustrated. I keep hitting the fence. I look over. And there's like a four-year-old on skis coming down the hill. And now I'm starting to get frustrated because I'm thinking to myself, you know, like this is really testing my manhood. That a four-year-old is coming down this hill and maneuvering and turning. No parents with her. And, and I'm just like, like I can do this. like I'm literally psyching myself, like you're a grown man. Like you can ski. You can do this. And so my wife, you know, she gets tired of my frustration after a while. She just kind of looks at me and gently says, Um, do you mind if I go on the big hill? I don't know if that was the most loving thing that she could have said at that moment. But she went to the big hill, and I thought to myself, you know what? I'm done with this. This is why I don't ski. So I took my skis off. I went inside where it was warm, and I drank some hot chocolate. And I was done for the day. She couldn't find me, came in and found me inside. And she said, babe, what happened? I thought you were trying to learn. I I said, no, go ahead. Have a good time. Take your time. Enjoy yourself. Don't rush. I'm fine. I got the fire. I got hot chocolate. I'm good. My first time skiing, because I didn't have anybody teaching me, showing me what to do properly, and because I didn't get a lesson and I was trying to teach myself, I failed miserably. There were certain things that needed to be in place as a foundational understanding for me to be able to ski properly. There are certain things that needed to be in place that I needed to have learned in order to go out there and experience success skiing. We find ourselves here in the book of Timothy as Paul uh, writes to his young boy or uh, his, you know, his young guy, like his son in the faith. Um, And this is possibly uh, one of the first times that Timothy has. Gotten into ministry and been left on his own. He's been traveling with Paul all over the place, chanting, uh, uh, planting churches, training leaders and raising them up. Uh, And we find uh, Timothy here in Ephesus uh, left alone where Paul is now writing to him, uh, sending him some instructions on what he is possibly uh, to do in uh, the beginning of the book. He tells uh, 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 he tells Timothy to stay in Ephesus and to put certain things in place. There are certain foundational things that you need to begin doing while you're there in Ephesus in order to establish a, a particular culture in the church that will lead to health and growth and strength. But oftentimes when we come to this book of first Timothy, we we, we come to this book as if this book is only for pastors. That's why it's known as the pastoral epistles. First and second, Timothy and Titus. But when we make our way through the book and we get to chapter three, verse 15, Paul tells us what the, pers- the, the, the purpose of the book is, why he's writing it. He says these words. You don't have to flip there. It's only a page, but you can if you want to. Uh, he says these words. He says, I'm writing these things to you so that so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. And so Paul writes this book to Timothy as he's on his own in ministry now trying to build and develop leaders and set foundations in the church. And he says, listen, Timothy, I'm writing this book to you so that you can know how Christians are to are to behave in God's house. Now, I I know we don't have no problems in the church and we don't know how to we don't need to know how to behave in the church because church folk got it all together. But every once in a while, we need some instruction on teaching us how to behave in the church. There is a certain expectation, a certain standard that God has for his people that needs to be communicated, not just once, but kind of regularly because we need reminders to tell us this is how the people of God are to behave in his house. So Paul says, this is why I'm writing this letter to you. By the time we get to chapter four, verse 11, where verse 11 through 16, where we're going to spend our time, Paul now is giving Timothy some very particular instructions That I believe summarized the entirety of what he's telling Timothy in this book. And if I I will, I have a few points for us this morning and then I'm out your way. The first one is simply this. Effective ministry requires an exemplary Christian lifestyle. Effective ministry requires an exemplary Christian lifestyle. Lifestyle. Now, why am, I, why am I talking about the effectiveness of ministry? I was a part of a church plant that's now almost 12 years old, and you guys are, are right at the beginning, the early stages, the genesis of your birth here in, in, in Delaware as God wants to use this church to minister to this city, to these communities, to families within it, and God wants to do a great work in you. And I'm believing God that he's going to do a great work in you, but I'm here because I want to let you know that there are some foundational things that need to be in place in order for your witness and your ministry to be effective as you do God's work in the city. Effective ministry requires an exemplary Christian lifestyle. Look at with me at verses 11 and 12. He says, command and teach these things, the things that I've been telling you about as I'm writing you in in chapters one through uh, three, command and teach these things. Don't let anyone despise Your youth. Don't be intimidated. Don't let them intimidate you uh, uh, because of your youthfulness. But set an example for the believers. Now, oftentimes we use this verse and we stop at don't let them intimidate you or don't let anyone despise your youth. And see, Paul wants Timothy to know, Timothy, I know that you're youthful. He wasn't a youth as we know youth to be, not a teenager. He was a young man by this time in his life. But he was a timid man, the Bible says, often in different places in first Timothy and also in second Timothy. We see that Paul has to exhort Timothy to make sure that he opens his mouth, that he's courageous, that he stands before them unashamed and unintimidated. And here Paul again has to remind him, don't let them despise your youthfulness. Don't let them despise the fact that you're younger than them. But he doesn't stop there. He says the way that you earn their respect The way that you earn the the right to have a voice before them is you have to set the example. See, sometimes in your youthfulness, there may not be anybody before you that you can look to as an example of how things are supposed to be done. And yet at the same time, there's an expectation when you haven't seen it before you to set the example for those who are behind you. To set the example for those who have been around in this city doing ministry longer than you. To set the example for those uh, who have, uh, uh, may look at you and think that who is this new church and why do they think that they have the right to come to this city and do God's work when we've been here all along. So don't let them despise you for your, for your youth, but set the example. Now the beautiful thing about what Paul is telling Timothy as he says to set this example is there is not an arrogance that Timothy is supposed to have as he's setting the example. In his youthfulness, where he's disrespectful and saying that he can't learn anything from those who have come before him, where he can't partner with them, where where he is above and better than them. This is just a season where God is saying, I want you to be faithful in your character. And what does he tell him? He says the first thing he says. Set the example in your speech. It literally means word and what comes out of your mouth. The language that you use. I like what he tells him over in 2 Timothy. He's very specific. He says, have nothing to do, Timothy, with foolish and ignorant controversies. You know, the kind that breeds quarrelsomeness. Set the example in your speech. Are we a church that breeds quarrelsomeness? He says, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone able to teach patient, enduring evil. Did you hear that patiently enduring evil correcting his opponents with gentleness, speech. He says, Timothy, I, I know that they're not often going to want to listen to what you have to say, but as you set the example of what behavior in the church should look like, you have to set the example in your speech when nobody's looking. With those times when you're around your friends that aren't believers, that don't hold you to the same standard. Is your speech different when you're not around church folk on Sunday? Set the example in your speech. He doesn't end there, though, but he keeps going. He says, set the conduct or the example in your conduct. Timothy was to make certain that he lived according to the truth that he had been teaching. Paul saw this as an important discipline for his own life, saying that I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. That word conduct refers to manner of life or behavior. How you live matters. How you live matters. What you do matters. It's not just about what comes out of your mouth, but it's about whether or not what comes out of your mouth matches what Your feet are actually doing. He says, lest I disqualify myself after preaching, how many of us have shown that we have not behaved well in God's church by preaching something that we rarely practice. How many of us have disqualified people's understanding of what God's people are supposed to be like? And made it difficult for them to embrace the truth of God, not because of the message of Jesus Christ, but because of the conduct of his people. Set the example in conduct. And then he says, Set the conduct the, the example in love. Paul uses this word love that describes a distinctively Christian love. It's it's not just any old type of love. This is the the Christian type of love. We're talking about a Christian ethic of love here, which seeks to give rather than to receive. What Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 2, to count others more significant than yourself, to not only seek your own interests, but also the interests Uh, Of others, he says that love is to be directed towards other people, especially the members of the Christian community. Set the example in love. Not the type of love that places your preferences as the ultimate goal. Not the type of love that classifies certain patterns of sin as worse than others. Set the example in love. Then he says, set the example in faith. Basically meaning that if Timothy were to trust God to do what God had promised, he would be a great model of faith for the people in his care. Faith, that idea of faith, combines both the elements of trust and confidence in God. A trust of what is not known and a confidence that God will do it. As well as faithfulness. To him, So he says, set the example in speech and conduct and love and faith. And then he says, set the example in purity. I love that word. It means moral cleanness. It's where we get our word hygiene from. It's related to that word hygiene, especially as it relates to the integrity of one's relationship with the opposite sex. Purity can be understood as a general term for an upright and morally blameless life and specifically as referring to being free from any immoral acts, especially acts related to sex. If there was one critique that most people would have against the church, it would be for our lack of moral cleanness. It would be for the lack of the church's hygiene. The church has not done a good job to take care of cleaning itself, of bathing itself, washing itself in the water of the word. And so the world doesn't see the reflection of what is clean and what is morally good and what gives off a fragrant odor. But they see the stench. They see the hypocrisy. They see the dirt and they want nothing to do with it. If there was one critique That we needed to be mindful of. It would simply be this, that we need to take care of our moral cleanness. Not only does effective ministry require an exemplary Christian lifestyle, but it also requires a clear communication of God's word. If you want to have effective ministry, if you want your ministry to be successful, then it is absolutely necessary That there is clear communication of what God's word says. Look with me at verse 13. It says, until I come, Paul tells him, give your attention to public reading, to exhortation and to teaching, to public reading, to exhortation and to teaching. It's interesting that we find uh, this idea uh, that comes from what happened oftentimes in the synagogue. And not only that, but we see something clear about this happening in Nehemiah chapter eight. After the wall has been rebuilt and they found the law and the the, the law of God. And it says this. It says that they read from the book from the law of God clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah dispensed men to go out into the crowd and to interpret what God's law said so that the people could understand what they were reading. And then the Bible says that they stood there all day long. Listening to God's word read, hearing the interpretation of it and crying in worship to God because of how good his word was. See, there is there, this understanding here that Paul is encouraging Timothy with and say, it's not just enough for you to get people to hoop and holler because they're excited it, there has to be a clear communication of God's word where people actually understand what his word is saying and know how to apply it to their lives in faithful obedience. See, teaching God's word with clarity takes time, it takes patience, it takes an understanding of words so that I can take big ideas and break it down into smaller, understandable sentences so people can digest it. See, that was one of the issues with the Corinthians. That Paul got on them about, he said, man, y'all are trying to eat a bunch of meat and you're not ready for that. You should hunger and long for the pure milk of the word, because all of this theology that you're trying to understand is just going to make you want to regurgitate it without knowing what you're talking about and find yourself in foolish arguments about this, that and the third. And the purpose of God's word is never going to get to the purpose, which is actually changing lives. That word for preaching or exhortation here in verse 13 translates a Greek verb that is often translated to encourage or to comfort or to urge. Preaching here, as Paul uses this term, does not refer to the proclamation of the good news of the gospel, but more so to the explanation of the scripture passages themselves so that their meaning is relevant and clear. Another way that Paul could have just simply said this is to say, Timothy, when you preach God's word, make sure that you explain the meaning of the scriptures to the people so that they understand. Not only does effective ministry require clear communication of God's word and uh, an exemplary Christian lifestyle, but it also requires the exercise of spiritual gifts and calling Verse 14 says, do not neglect the gift, Timothy, that is in you, the gift that was given to you through prophecy with the laying on of hands by the council of elders. This idea of do not neglect is the phrase basically meaning you must continually make use of. The gift could have potentially represented an aptitude for teaching and preaching together with an ability to understand the gospel and discern error. It's interesting If the church is going to be effective in ministry, then the church needs all of its members to actively, regularly use the gift that God has given you. I don't know if you guys know this, but typically the normal statistic in the church is that 10% of the church is doing 100% of the work. How much more effective would the ministry of the church be if every single member... Was utilizing their gifts and callings for the furthering of God's kingdom through the local church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul makes this argument and he says that every single believer has been given a particular gift by the Holy Spirit. If you name the name of Jesus Christ, if you have trusted him for salvation, that you have been downloaded with a particular set of skills for God's use. So the question that I have for you today is how can this church be effective if you are sitting on the skills that God has given you expressly for the use in his church? The church needs your help. The church needs you to get in to the game. The church needs you to not sit on your hands and on your gifts because there's a piece of the puzzle that is missing as long as you are inactive. He says, make use of this thing continually. Why does he want him to make use continually of his gift so that he is growing in his gifting so that he's growing in his calling so he can figure out nuances of his calling. So he's making it to use for others impact and so that it's not rusty so that if a moment comes up where God wants to use him and he's never used his gift before, he'll be in trouble. See, it's like language. You know, when I was in high school, I, I, I took Spanish and French. And as soon as I got out of high school, I lost it. I Started working at Taco Bell for a long time and there were some great young women there from Guatemala and they would teach us Spanish and we would teach them English. And I used to love it because people would think I was Dominican because I could speak fluent Spanish for the most part. Until I went to the DR last year with my wife. Now that was about 10 years ago when I was learning Spanish and speaking it regularly or utilizing it regularly. So we got to the DR, and everybody in the DR thought I was Dominican. They treated me like family. I felt like I was home in my spirit. The only problem was I couldn't communicate. And so as they were talking to me, and you know, for me it was it was kind of frustrating because I'm thinking to myself, "Man, I know Spanish. I used to be able to speak Spanish fluently." And as we were sitting there talking, We'd be talking with them, trying to have a conversation, and I couldn't keep up. I didn't even know how to respond with simple stuff. Couldn't do it. And my wife would look at me and give me that look like, I thought you knew Spanish. And then she would say something in response, the correct answer, and I'd be like, Man, I knew that. I just need a refresher, right? But what happens is when you don't use it, you lose it. And Paul here is telling Timothy to make sure that you are regularly using the gift that God gave you. You did not give you the gift. That's right. And you cannot dictate how and when and where you use the gift. God gave you the gift through his spirit for a particular purpose and he demands that you use it and you use it regularly. Don't neglect making use of it. My last and final point this morning, effective ministry requires diligence and growth. It requires diligence and growth. Look at verses 15 and 16 with me. It says, Practice these things. Be committed to them so that your progress may be evident to all. So that your progress may be evident to all. It's as if Paul is telling Timothy that To remember that there is an expectation that he should be growing. There is an expectation that he should be growing. And that his growth should be noticeable by those who are watching him. We have a four-month-old sitting over there with my wife. And the great thing about babies that parents get excited about are the milestones that they hit. When they say, when do they start walking? When do they start crawling? When do they start babbling? When do they start, uh, uh, you know, giving you facial expressions and smiling at you, not just as a muscle reflex, reflex, Right. And so you're always trying to hit those milestones. You even go to the doctor's office regularly, more often when they're younger, so that the doctors can check and see whether or not they're hitting those milestones. And do you want to know why they do that? They want to do that because if they're not hitting those milestones, then it's a red flag that there's possibly something wrong. We need to do more investigation. See, that's what the Christian life is like. When I see people who have named the name of Jesus Christ. And you see them one time and you see them the next time and they're not growing. It's a red flag that there's something else going on keeping them from being able to hit the mile markers of expectation of growth in their life. You should be growing and it should be visible, not just to you. There was a a young lady, Nadia Comaneci, from Romania in the nineteen seventy six Olympics, a gymnast. She was a beast. Was killing it. And she won three out of the five gymnast events and scored three perfect tense in her routines which had never been done before in history and you know as she was performing the announcers were going crazy the crowd was going crazy and after her last uh uh 10 score performance the 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 uh announcer went over to her all excited and and he's like man like do you know what you just did like what you just did has never been done before in history this is so amazing like how were you able to do this and she nonchalantly responded I did 14 of those in practice. See, practice prepares you for the game. Practice prepares you for when the lights are on. And so when when you've been called, when God's called you and opportunities have come for you to be able to utilize the gift that God has called you to, it should not be the first time that you're making use of them. You should be so active and so at work for God's kingdom and serving his people and serving his will that when the lights come on and ministry needs to get done, you have already done everything necessary to be prepared for that moment. See, that's what is called faithfulness. I like how uh, Crawford Loretz defines faithfulness. He simply says that it's a long obedience in a specific direction. Faithfulness is a long obedience in a specific direction. Direction. Verse 16, he says, pay close attention to your life and your teaching. It seems like this is the summary of the entire book and specifically this chapter. Paul tells him, be mindful, young Timothy, that your life matches the teaching. That how you live matches your doctrine, how you live matches your application of your doctrine, because it matters. You cannot have life without teaching and you cannot have teaching without the life. They go together and they coincide and people can tell whether or not you're a hypocrite. He says, watch your life and your teaching and persevere in these things for in so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. See your life. And your teaching have an impact on those who are following you. It impacts those who are watching you. And you might fake it for a little while, but eventually what's hidden is going to come to light. I don't know if any of you have any experience with sinkholes. Uh, Down in Florida, usually down in the south, they have have issues with with sinkholes. And I've thankfully never had to, to deal with a sinkhole, but a sinkhole basically is... A gap in the in the top layer of soil and under. So you have the top layer of soil. Then there is a gap of space and there's some room and then there is soil at the bottom. And what happens over time is that soil shifts on the top layer and falls through the the gap and hits the bottom. And eventually that top layer gets so thin that it just collapses and everything goes to the bottom. And so sinkholes can be so Huge that it will swallow an entire house, sometimes blocks at a time, depending on how long uh, or how large that gap is. But sinkholes often remind me of the Christian life when our life and our doctrine don't match. See, on that top layer of soil, we might seem like we have it together and underneath it's corroding. Underneath things are falling apart. Underneath where people can't see, there's a bunch of damage just waiting to be done. And then unbeknownst to you, before you can even know what happens, your life falls through the cracks. Paul here is telling young Timothy, be mindful of the opportunities that you have to destroy people's lives because your life and your doctrine don't match. Persevere in it, young Timothy. See, the beautiful thing about true gospel Ministry is that it results in changed lives. When ministry is built upon the truth of God's word. And it's carried out by people who are living Christ like lives that are making full use of their spiritual gifts and are diligent to make sure that their life and their doctrine match. That's when you have an effective church doing effective ministry that results in the changed lives of the people of the community that it's serving. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. See, Jesus Christ had to do the same thing when he came from heaven to earth. He had to live in such a way where he set the example of what it meant so that people would know that there was something different about him. That there was something different about this man who grew up in Nazareth where he was unlike any of the other religious leaders. He had an exemplary lifestyle where nobody could hold a charge against him. They could not hold up anything against him. That's why the Bible says that no sin was found in him, nor deceit came from his mouth. When he taught the people with the clarity of God's word, it says that they marveled at his teaching and said, Who is this man who can teach with such authority? Pilate, as they crucified, had to testify that God was with him by saying, What evil has this man done? I have found no guilt deserving of his death. Even Jesus the Christ had to come and set the example of what it meant to live for God in holiness and clarity of speech and diligence and faithfulness and faith and trust in God. And he set the example of what it looks like for the church to follow in his footsteps to be able to effectively minister God's word to broken people. You know, that skiing experience that I had as I was sliding down the little bunny hill hill. That was just so repetitious for me. I would slide down the hill and I would trot back up. I would slide down the hill and I would trot back up. I would slide down the hill and I would trot back up. Here's the one thing that I learned as I was going back and forth on that hill. Is that activity does not equal progress. See, I was doing a lot of activity, going back and forth up the bunny hill. But I was not making progress. Church, if there's one thing I could tell you today as you go out and do God's work in the city of Wilmington, as you share the good news of Jesus Christ, as you love one another and as you support one another, care for one another. And as as you see people go from death to life, I want to tell you this one thing. Make sure that your activity equals progress. Make sure that you're not just doing a bunch of things for the sake of doing them, but the things that you're doing has the resounding effect of seeing lives change for the glory of Jesus Christ. Make sure that your activity equals progress. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful and thankful for your word today. We are thankful and grateful that your word is true for us and that we can learn from it. Help us, O God, to be men and women of great faith who hold on tightly to your word, whose lives match up the very things that we are preaching, both to ourselves and to those that we would love to see come to know you by faith in Christ. Father, help us to make use of the gifts that you have given us. Sometimes we don't even know what those gifts are, but we do find them out once we get to work. And so, Father, I pray that this would be a community of people who has linked arms together, who is bought into the mission and vision and values of why you have placed this church here, and that you would give them the joy of serving together. Give them evidences of your grace as they see people go from death to life and join the ranks of your kingdom. Join the family that you are building here. And so, Father, we pray that everything that we do from this day and for all days forward. God, we would do it to the glory of your name because your name is great and your name is worthy to be praised. And we just pray that this church, Epiphany Wilmington, would be a light on top of a hill that would be known for people of God who have have exemplary service, who preach the clear word of God, who make use of their giftings and their growth and their consistency. Is evident to all. Father, we pray. All of things these things in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, we do pray.